everyone, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is part of my series on radicalism in the English Revolution. We had Ariel Hesse on before, and now we have Rachel Foxley, the author of The Levelers, Radical Political Thought in the English Revolution. And this is perfect because what I'm interested in is radical political thought in the English Revolution. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So what we've done so far was talk through with Ariel some of the things that caused the the Civil War, the very basics of what happened, um, who won, that sort of thing. And kind of one of the ways that we left off, and also sort of one of the ways that we started, is if you draw far enough out, the English Revolution and the French Revolution are more or less identical. I'm well aware they're not identical on the ground, but you've got conflict over money, between the king and the body that is responsible for giving the king money. The king thinks he can go his own way. Eventually, sort of surprising everyone, it becomes war. The king's head is cut off. And then, and this is the part that's most shocking to me, you get a a central, powerful figure who is not a king, but is kind of a king. And that person does... uh, imperialism in the Caribbean, for example, and also elsewhere elsewhere in, in Europe. And I'm aware that Cromwell is not Napoleon. I'm, I'm quite aware. Um, and I thought actually maybe we could, uh, that could be one of the things that we talk about, because I'm aware that there's some tolerance involved with Cromwell and his relationship to the levelers. So I want to talk about that. But before I can just stop and say, you can tell us who the who the levelers are and where they fit in this broad picture. Yeah, so the levelers are part of the parliamentarian side in the Civil War. Um, the parliamentarian movement is a broad movement. It's uh, it's at odds with itself in many ways from the beginning. Uh, and one of the ways, one of the reasons why the English Revolution obviously does, as you say, end up in some ways being very parallel to the French Revolution when that emerges later, is that revolutions tend to have these dynamics that they tend to generate once once authority has been challenged and cast off to some extent, revolutions tend to then generate lots of competing candidates for um, taking power and trying to resolve the revolutionary situation and impose their particular set of ideals. And in the English Revolution, obviously, we know that it was Parliament that won, but that was a situation that generated this kind of explosion of ideas. And the revolution itself generated these processes of radicalisation within it that historians are increasingly interested in. We used to be obsessed with what were the causes of the English Civil War. Now we're obsessed with how did the revolution actually radicalise itself as it went along? And the levellers are really part of that process. They're one of the results of that process. So the parliamentarian side, which was victorious against the king, it was beginning to be obvious, 1645, 1646, it was pretty obvious that Parliament were on the verge of winning. And it's at this point that the key leveller leaders are associating with each other, starting to write on behalf of each other and reference each other and work together. And they become something that later gets called the Leveller Movement. And the Leveller Movement is really a radical parliamentarian movement in the later 1640s, in the run-up to the regicide, trying to come up with ideas about what the settlement should look like and trying to push the mainstream parliamentarian position towards a much more radical position on that. And then after the regicide, after the execution of Charles I, the levellers become key voices challenging the way that the revolution has turned out as well. So I think they partly enabled the regicide to happen, but they also then were key critics of the post-regicide regime uh, and were fairly swiftly crushed at that point. 
Okay, that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's just fantastic. I think the first thing to say here is it, it's interesting to me that when you think about the levelers as radicals in the English Revolution, well, I'll t take a step back. As near as I can tell, of the groups that this series is going to discuss, the levelers, who are not actually levelers, the diggers, who are truly levelers, the ranters, the Quakers, and a group I've never even heard of, the fifth monarchists, but I have been convinced to add them to the series. As near as I can tell, all of these other groups, besides the levelers, are not actually very important at this moment in history. Either their ideas are important when we look back of how did radicalism happen, or the Quakers obviously are a world historical force, but they're not doing something that big in, in the 1640s. And so for the perspective of the English Civil War, you could easily have not heard of any of these people. The levelers are different, though. The people that we call the levelers are right in the heart of it and really matter. I think that's true. I think that's true. There have been attempts by historians to cut them down to size to make them very marginal <laughs> players. Um, there was a whole phase of revisionism where the whole of the English Civil War seemed on, in danger of, or the whole of the English Revolution seemed in danger of being downgraded to a very minor local skirmish. And I, didn't, I think that would be a big mistake. Um, but I think the levelers started to open up certain ideas. Other, other radicals around at the time were also opening up some of those ideas, but the levelers started to do it in a systematic way. They started to do it in a collective way, and they started to publish things that hadn't been thinkable or sayable so much on the parliamentarian side in quite a systematic way uh, and rally people behind those ideas in the later 1640s. And that has to be part of what makes the execution of Charles I thinkable, I think. Excellent. All right, so before we get to those ideas and... Um, who is generating them, I do want to get your thoughts of to what extent were, I haven't mentioned, neither Ariel nor I mentioned Fairfax, but to what extent were, were Fairfax and Cromwell, who perhaps we could think of as like the radical branch of the the, the grandees, whatever you want to call them, of the, of the you know, the, the very powerful people in the parliamentarian side, Cromwell and Fairfax seem to have been relatively radical compared to their brethren, not as radical as the levelers, and seem to have been sympathetic to the levelers. And, and tolerance is the word that often gets used. So I wanted to get your sense of the extent to which, you know, Fairfax and Cromwell were sympathetic to the levelers before we get to who, who they were and what they were doing. Okay, well, I think this takes us into it takes us into 1647 and it takes us into the army to a certain extent. So I think perhaps I should say something about, about how that all works. I should say that Lilburn's relationship with Cromwell goes back much earlier than that. John Lilburn, the key leveller leader, I will just introduce at this point for the purposes of, of making this connection. Uh, he was a character who became extremely well known, had this nickname, Freeborn John, and he became extremely well known already in the 1630s before the English Revolution broke out. He was uh, a Puritan, he was moving in radical Puritan circles already, and he was involved in smuggling, circulating uh, vitriolic pamphlets by a man called John Bastwick against uh, the bishops of the Church of England. Lilburn was punished for that, as was Bastwick. Uh, Lilburn was put in prison. He, he was whipped through London. He was put in the pillory. He threw pamphlets from the pillory. He already established himself as a martyr figure already in 1638. Um, and so Lilburn already has that reputation, and he's in prison at the time of 
the meeting of the Long Parliament. And the person who leads the effort, lots of these Puritan martyrs were then liberated and recuperated and recompensated for what they'd gone through by the Long Parliament. The person who leads the effort on Lilburn's behalf, who speaks on his behalf in Parliament, is Oliver Cromwell. Mm. And Oliver Cromwell at that time is a relatively, relatively obscure MP. So they do have this connection early on. Lilburn was also in the army for a while and did at some stage have quite a cordial relationship with Oliver, with Oliver Cromwell. They're both very much on the on the side of the war party. They, they, they want the war to be fought properly. They want the war to be won so that the deal that can be made with the king is a, is a good, tough deal. Um, so they are, at the outset, fairly natural allies. By 1647, this has very much broken down. And in 1647, the relationship of the levellers, who were already quite a, quite a force in terms of publishing pamphlets by that point, and the New Model Army comes to a head. So I think I should perhaps outline 1647 a little bit. It is an absolutely um, climactic year. This is a year in which Parliament has won the Civil War. The question of what the settlement is going to be is becoming a very fraught one. There is a dominant parliamentarian faction that wants to make a relatively moderate settlement with the king. There are others who feel that is not good enough and that it's going to let down the cause that has been fought for in significant ways. The new model army, of course, in theory, is, co is commanded by parliament, but the majority in parliament turns against the new model army, is suspicious of it politically. And the result is that the new model army, complete with its grandees, its leaders, including Cromwell and Fairfax, actually effectively turn against parliament in that year and go into a state of, of sustained mutiny through the summer of 1647. And at that point, some slightly more democratic structures also emerge within the new model army, which are important to the story. Um, so it's not just the officers debating what happens in 1647. It's some members of the rank and file, some representatives uh, of the army more generally are also part of some of those discussions. And as part of this mutiny of the army against parliament, the army actually starts negotiating directly with the king. It bypasses parliament. In fact, it actually kidnaps the king from where he's being held by parliament, takes custody of him uh, themselves and start negotiating with the king. But by the time you get to the autumn of 1647, some of the more radical elements in the army think that the army leadership is on the verge of selling them out in those negotiations. And certainly uh, the, the trust that any, any trust that the levelers had in Oliver Cromwell by that point is definitely gone and you get some very vitriolic pamphlets against the army leadership as well as what happens in the Putney debates themselves. Let's get to some, the Putney debates in a moment. I do think the only thing that I want to jump in and say, and then I'll just let you keep going unless you want me to prompt you with something, is that one of the sort of truisms that I've discovered and does seem to be true when you study radical thought is when you find democracy, Athens is the most famous example, you often find that it comes at the barrel of a gun, right? Or the end of a sword. All of a sudden, if you've got enough people who think that they should be heard, okay, fair enough. And also they're the ones who have the, the, the weapons. Well, the traditional problem when people think they should be heard is to send the guys with the weapons against them. So in Athens, 
or with the new model army, if the people who say, hey, our voices should matter are the ones with the weapons, well, you can't send the guys with the guns against them. And lo and behold, from uh, from mutiny comes democracy, which is just a fascinating thing to me. Yeah, I think it's a really... It's a really interesting moment in 1647. And one of the things that historians debate is what's the relationship of the of the sort of core of the leveller movement, who are civilians by the time they're acting as levellers. Lilburn had been in the army, but is out of the army by this point. What's the relationship between them and the new model army? But obviously, one answer to that question is precisely that the civilian levellers want the army on their side for precisely the reasons that you've said. Um, and historians have debated how successfully they penetrate the army, how successfully they get their propaganda into the army. You've got some people, uh, some hostile people commenting at the time saying the army is one little burn throughout. They take his writings as scripture. They're just, you know, they're completely indoctrinated, these radicals in the army. But of course, we know that the army wasn't wholly composed of ideological uh, ideological parliamentarians who signed up for that reason. It wasn't wholly composed of radicals, even among the people who were convinced parliamentarians who signed up for the new model army. But there's definitely this strain of radical thought within the army that at some points diverges from exactly what the civilian levelers would want, at some points converges, but there's definitely a sense that the levelers want the army on their side. And also at some points that the army are reaching across to these civilian radicals as well. Okay, great. It seems to me uh, there's there's three places we need to go, and you can tell me if there's where we should start. Um, there's the their actual views, so what the levelers are thinking. They're often held up as you know having sort of invented in in the Western world what we would now call like de- democratic liberalism. If if when Stanley invented anarchist communism, which I, which I think he did, the levelers seem to have invented something that would be very comfortable for a a twentieth century or twenty first century resident of the west i'm there's no way there's no good term for this but you know you guys know what i'm talking about nato members that sort of thing um the other thing is their methods this is where they seem to be quite anarchic and i have found the quote where someone describes them as anarchists so i'll I'll spring that on you at the right moment so making you know appeals to the people and pamphlets and that sort of thing this is this is very anarchic or radical and then finally, and maybe this will start us, or maybe this can be where we go, there's this thing, the Putney debates, which is where you can actually sit down and read these these radical statements from 400 years ago that sound in so many ways so contemporary. So their ideas, the way they spread those ideas, and then how those ideas, you know, sort of come to a head in the Putney debates. How would you how would you like to get there? I think let's do it in that order. Let's do the ideas first. Okay, great. So I will, I can plunge in with that. So essentially, the levelers believe that no one is born to rule someone else. No one is born above another another person in a god-given hierarchy. So their fundamental belief is in a natural equality that everyone has. And at points, they don't often stop to spell out their theory, but at points where they do, there's one point where Lilburn does it. And it's very interesting that in that statement, he says, actually, every man and woman is born Mm. on an equal basis. So that fundamental natural equality is at the root of all of their thinking. And they argue on the basis of that, that in order then to rule legitimately over anyone else, you have to have their consent. It has to be based on a process of consent. So this is a politics based on natural rights and based on ideas of consent. It doesn't mean that the level is totally departed from talking about uh, history, the the law, the legal system. They did 
hark back to rights that they thought were actually inherent in English history and the legal system as well. And they sometimes fudged issues such as, um, you know, was the legal system still sound or had it been corrupted by the Norman conquest? There's, there's all of that going on as well. They don't speak a purely theoretical language, but when they do speak a theoretical language, they really are talking about fundamentally natural rights and an architecture of politics that is based on consent, because otherwise there's no such thing as legitimate rule over a person who is naturally free and equal. Yeah, and I'll just jump in and say this is this is late to 18th century enlightenment rhetoric perfectly, talking about inalienable mm. rights and the will of the people or the consent of the governed. It's it's right there, all yeah. the way back in the 1640s. Excellent. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you say inalienable rights, because again, that's something that has been very much credited to the levelers. This idea, not just that you're that you're born free and equal, but that some of your rights, whatever agreement you make with other people, you maybe can't give up. You just simply can't give up. And the key right that they think you can never give up is your right to freedom of conscience in religion. And they're very consistent about that. So that is a power you just cannot hand over to anyone else. Your relationship, your con your relationship with God in your conscience is your own and no government can interfere with that relationship. They can lay on some benign religious teaching, but they can't interfere in your relationship with God and, and how you choose to worship, uh, how you choose to worship God. So that idea of inalienable rights does start to come through in the levelers and it starts to come through particularly in a document called the agreement of the people which is um, the first agreement of the people there was a series of them is something that emerges more from the uh, army context but it has in it what it calls reserves it says there are certain powers that are reserved from the government that the government can never exercise over the people and freedom of conscience is is one of these reserved powers so this is why the levelers have been credited with with the idea of inalienable rights, not just with basing the whole theory on natural rights. Oh, fantastic. I mean, that, that, that sounds again, like the bill of rights. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I have to say this sometimes, especially when talking to people in the UK, I'm not just an American. I'm a historian of American ideas. So I can't, I, I, I can't hear these things and not, and not relate them back to American thought. Sorry about that. No, of course. Okay. So this, this set of ideas, I guess, so th this obviously Puritanism is is sort of the underpinning of all of this. This also explains, I think, why someone like Cromwell is in, in some ways interested in these ideas, but especially even when he comes to disagree with them, that he goes along with them. Uh, sorry, that he, you know, that you, you can't imagine Cromwell turning the cannons on the levelers as you could imagine other military leaders turning the cannons on dissenters because this belief, obviously Cromwell doesn't agree with everything the levelers believe, but this belief that you have this inalienable right of, of worship, but we could even say like an inalienable right of ideas. I don't think they would put it that way, but in my secular way, I would put it that way. That's something that Cromwell felt very strongly. And that makes him no nothing like Napoleon. Napoleon did not think this just if you're not a napoleon expert napoleon did not believe that everyone in his empire had the right to their own ideas and worship however they wanted and when i look back i find cromwell to be such a radical figure for that reason i think cromwell really does share that core commitment to a certain degree at least of, of freedom of conscience the levelers may take it further than cromwell um, cromwell certainly is very much 
in favour of religious, religious toleration for those honest Protestants who have the root of the matter in them, whether or not they're sectarian uh, or, or members of the national church. And it is very significant for the levellers that they draw a lot of their support from gathered churches in London, churches that had split off from the national church. Um, and they themselves, uh, the key leveller leaders, um, were members of those kinds of churches or were very sympathetic towards them. So John Milburn, we know, was a Baptist, a particular Baptist, so one who, at least at the start of his career, was very much sticking to Calvinist ideas. Uh, William Wallin um, claims to still be a member of the nat National Church, but the amount that he talks about the different gathered congregations and his friends in them, you actually start to wonder whether this is a little bit of a cover story. Um, and Wallin is actually quite unorthodox, and he believes in uh, some kind of uh, free grace. So he he doesn't he's not a Calvinist. And Richard Overton similarly is uh, a General Baptist. So again, he has actually quite heretical views, including um, including the the rather charming heretical view of of soul sleeping. So that that the whole man, body and soul, dies at death and is then resurrected at the resurrection. And he writes a whole book about this that, that he publishes uh, in the 1640s and is republished in the 1650s. So there's some interesting heretical things. They're not all from exactly the same part of this um, diverse Puritan spectrum that evolves in Civil War London. And it's interesting that they're not. They're actually working alongside each other, but from slightly different positions. Um, but, but that congregational, gathered congregations context is absolutely a, a key support base for the civilian levellers, particularly in London. I think you were a bit charitable to Cromwell, though, when you said that you couldn't imagine him turning the guns on the levellers, because there are two mutinies in the army where ultimately, ultimately the army leadership does turn against the army radicals. So there is one in 1647. And then again in 1649, after the regicide, um, there, are, there is a mutiny in the army. Uh, they're mutinying partly in support of the third agreement of the people that the civilian levellers have issued from the Tower of London at that point. Um, and and there are soldiers who are who are shot for their part in in those mutinies. So it's an it's a bit charitable to Cromwell, I'm afraid, to say that he could never have done that. I think. Um, so you know, so turning the cannons on them because they've risen up against you, that seems to me very different from torturing them, forcing them to confess, murdering them for what they believe, even if they met, didn't rebel against you. And Cromwell's not after ideas i don't think he's not after the ideas he wants the ideas to flourish and he's okay with those ideas flourishing within the people as long as they don't do the very obvious thing of you know rebel well no it's definitely it's definitely about army unity and it's definitely after 16 after the regicide it's definitely about the simple security of the new regime i mean that's that's the key concern i'm sorry let's get back to the key level are ideas. So we've got tolerance and this religious basis. You've introduced the idea that there's some form of gender equality, which I want to hear more about. And obviously this is going to come up with both Win Stanley and the ranters. Um, and then the basic idea, I mean, my understanding is they want some form of suffrage, possibly universal manhood suffrage, possibly not. I've seen arguments about that, but let's let's hear about these ideas. Yes, yeah, so the basic leveller idea of consenting to government was an idea that was already around. Parliamentarians used this theory as well, the idea that, that ultimately power was derived in some way from the people or from the consent of the people. 
the thing that the levelers did that was more radical, I think, was that they really brought that right into the present day. A lot of other parliamentarian theorists would have been saying, well, way back in the past, there was a state of nature, then people consented to come into government. We have this great constitution. Parliament is part of this constitution, and therefore we can defend you against this king who seems to have uh, become uh, a tyrant of some kind. So they weren't saying you, the people, have the power now. They were saying we, as parliament, have power on your behalf now. That was essentially the parliamentarian message to the people, the mainstream parliamentarian message to the people. The levellers partly turn parliamentarian ideas against parliament itself. They say, actually, if we are unhappy with you as a parliament, if we think you as a parliament are becoming tyrannical, we can act against you. Your power could be forfeit as well. And they also bring the idea of consent right up to the present day and envisage parliamentary elections as the place where that consent is given and it, that it has to be constantly renewed. So the levellers, the civilian levellers are arguing for annual elections. Um, they become increasingly worried about parliamentarian tyranny, but also about the potential of any government to become corrupt. So what they're essentially suggesting uh, and championing is a government that would be government by a representative. They stop calling it a parliament and start calling it a representative, what they would actually like to see, partly because they're emphasising the idea of representation very strongly, that it really should represent the people. And that is a unicameral body. It doesn't need the consent of a House of Lords to make law. It doesn't need the consent of a king to make law. They don't always spell out whether they're intending to just cut out the House of Lords and the king completely. It may be that there's room for a kind, the king as a kind of executive figurehead of a government, but he certainly has absolutely no veto on legislation. And when they're talking about government, they're really talking about this single chamber representative that is going to rule the nation. And then, as you say, there's, a, there's been a long-standing debate among historians about exactly how wide the franchise for that should be, uh, according to the levellers. And that's because they say slightly different things at slightly different times. So you definitely get a sense that they are thinking about it expansively because they do make this argument Lilburn makes the argument, and then it's picked up in the Putney debates as well, that you really can't be legitimately ruled by a government unless you've consented to be under the laws that that government makes. And the implication of that is that everyone should have a vote. They don't obviously go that far. They don't suggest that women should have a vote. Uh, there's this, you know, as I say, they say that women are born equal to men, but there's then a, a kind of lacuna in the text where they don't explain how it is that women then come to be uh, governed by men within households. Um, but in terms of male suffrage, by the third agreement of the people, they're essentially saying that any man of the age of 21 years and over who isn't a servant, who isn't receiving arms, so payments for the poor, and who isn't someone who's been active in the royalist cause, any man aged 21 and over should have the vote. So being a servant means being a servant, living in someone else's house as a servant. You might be very dependent on them. You might be very dependent on the person who gives you arms if you're poor. And clearly they don't trust the royalists, but they say they're only going to cut out the royalists for, for 10 years. Then they will be able to vote after that. So it is a very expansive uh, franchise that they eventually end up proposing. Okay, excellent. I one topic that just comes up over and over again in studying radicalism is is the the, the problem of gender, the problem of women. I just read someone say that in the revolutions of eighteen forty eight, quote, women got nothing. I don't know if that's quite 
true, but it's 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 true enough considering how complicated the revolution of 1848 were. Obviously, when you look at the uh, both the Great French Revolution and the whatever you want to call it, the Communard Uprising, women were absolutely crucial to the revolt actually happening, and then were cut out of leadership as as much as possible. I mean, I'm I'm not tapped into like modern day radical circles on Reddit or Twitter, but my friends who are tell me that to this day, you can find people who are the leftists of the left, hardcore socialists, I'm sorry, not people, men who do not seem to have included gender as a category of oppression that needs to be defeated. It just comes up over and, and, and over again. That's why the ranters are, going to be very interesting because yeah. they both they take gender into account although in a way that i find complicated in its own way i can't I, I can't explain it except that this this pattern seems to have been riven you know just right through almost all revolutionary movements over the past i would have said 200 years but if we're going back to the english revolution we can now say back through the past 400 years it's it's unfathomable to me but it's it's what it is yeah and as you say, what's so interesting is that radicals have the building blocks there. They even start to articulate them and, and then they don't they don't follow through. But what's interesting about the Leveller movement is that there are, of course, women who are involved in it. Um, we hear quite a lot from the some of the Leveller leaders in their pamphleteering about their wives, which I know doesn't sound very positive. And in many ways, it's not very positive because what we tend to hear is the Leveller leaders saying that their wives, even though they're so terribly weak and even though their <laughs> reputations should be protected, have been treated abominably by the authorities. So perhaps the level of leader's house has been raided and as well as taking out papers and books, they've also dragged out his wife, clutching a baby to her breast. That's the kind of rhetoric that you tend to see in, in the level of pamphlets um, by the male level of leaders about their wives. It has to be said, though, that they also make it very clear that their wives understand the cause and are aligned with the cause. So they do play up the rhetoric of them being weak women. Um, at certain points, I mean, Lilburn later on in his marriage seems to be particularly impatient with his very, very long-suffering wife, Elizabeth. Um, but they do make it clear that their wives understand the cause, that their wives can make some quite sharp comments uh, about the cause that they're fighting for as well. And it's clear that the women were involved in certain ways, particularly when the male leaders were in prison, the women may be involved in the network of, of getting writings out, getting pamphlets distributed, perhaps stitching pamphlets as well, I think I seem to recall a, um, a reference to that. And later on in the Leveller movement, coming back to the question of the tactics of the Leveller movement, the Leveller movement started to try and mobilise large groups of people in various ways through print, um, but also mobilizing them to action in the streets. And they did that in various ways. They obviously were prodigious pamphleteers, and that's the core of their tactics. But they extend that into petitioning. So political petitioning becomes a major phenomenon during the English civil wars. Um, certain kinds of group petitions had happened before the civil wars, but they tended to be, I don't know, an occupational group protesting at the decay of their trade and asking what could be done about it, that kind of thing. But these kind of group political petitions become much more uh, prominent during the English civil war. And the levellers pick up this tactic, partly because it's so well aligned with their own message. A lot of the 
mobilization that happens during the English Civil War by parliamentarians and by royalists is mobilization that has to be done because they need people to fight a war for them. It's not mobilization that they do because they think that every person on the street should be thinking about politics and should be questioning things for themselves. But they have to do it and they have to make those claims um, and and make their case to the people. But for the levellers, the fit is perfect because this is their whole message that every single freeborn Englishman, to go back to slightly masculine rhetoric, should understand his own rights and liberties and should actually be motivated to act on them. So petitioning works very well. So they can get people to subscribe petitions, literally um, sign their names or make their marks on these petitions. But once you've got a petition, you have to present it to Parliament. So then you can have a um, then you can have a, a really nice procession of people going to Parliament. So petitioning was a great tactic, partly because you could hand in a petition that had huge numbers of signatures on it. This was a tactic that opponents of the levellers hated. They thought it had no validity because who were these people who'd signed it? The fact that there were so many of them was absolute proof that they couldn't be the kind of people who mattered in politics. But of course, it was completely aligned with the levellers' views. And the best way to make visible how big your petition was, was to send it with a huge crowd of its supporters to Parliament. And in 1649, there are a couple of points where it's women who take these who take these petitions to Parliament. And there are petitions that are authored in the name of women and presented by a group of women at Parliament. This is a really fascinating tactic by the levellers. The petitions, again, include rhetoric about femininity, which is kind of semi-humble rhetoric. We don't know who wrote these petitions. There are some individual petitions by levellers, wives on behalf of their particular husband and their, and their plight in prison. Uh, and in at least one case, we have the husband saying, I wrote this for her. Um, so we don't know who wrote the collective women's petitions, but they do have some very interesting language in them. One of them says that we have an interest in Christ equal unto men. Um, and then demands a proportionable share in the in the uh, matters of the Commonwealth. So it may be saying in questions of religion, we're totally equal in questions of politics, not quite so equal. That may be what it's saying. But women presented these petitions with some spirit. There's one uh, leading level of woman, Catherine Chidley, a writer who who writes um, on religious on religious matters. And she's not the wife of one of the major leveller leaders. Her son, Samuel, is also in a part of the leveller movement, but she seems to be quite a major figure in her own right. So she's involved in these events where these petitions are presented. And we do have newspaper reports of the presenting of petitions by women, uh, a particularly good one where... Uh, one of the MPs comes out and says it was strange that women should petition. And one of the women allegedly replies, well, it was strange that you cut off the king's head, but I suppose you will justify it. <laughs> so you get a sense that these are spirited women who do know what they're talking about. They're not just going along with something that has been orchestrated by the men in the movement. But at the same time, they're being used because they dramatise the effect that the repression that the movement has suffered at the hands of the authorities has has broken their households and that's what they're protesting about and that's why it's powerful for them to come out that's how it's justified that they're coming out into the public space and that's why it's powerful for them to come out into the public space yeah that, i'm so interested to hear this again i'm gonna reference the french revolution and say you know if you, you've got all these rules about who can speak who has standing who can hold what office but when the people come out in in a mass those rules simply cannot be applied and it does seem like 
in the French Revolution and clearly here also that women found that various rules on them not being, you know, it doesn't matter if you're not allowed to stand for parliament if thousands of you just show up outside of of parliament and you know quantity has a, a quality of its own so i'm i'm really impressed by this it also seems like this is a place where we can talk about mob rule and the uh, and the terrors of democracy one of the things i like to emphasize on this podcast is although everyone likes to call the united states a democracy the creators of the government uh, which is to say primarily uh, Madison and Hamilton did not think of it as a democracy. And when you were describing, you know, one uh, one unicameral legislature with no House of Lords, maybe not a king, and pretty much everyone gets to vote on a representative. When when the so-called founding fathers sat down to devise a system of government, what you described, they would have described as democracy. And they said, and we are definitely not going to do that. No democracy in this country. We're going to have a House of Lords. We're going to have a strong executive branch. We're going to have a judicial branch that can check all of this. This idea that everyone should have a vote and all the representatives should be more or less equal, that was much too radical for Madison and and Hamilton. And so I think we mentioned this a little bit in emails where, where people using the term democracy were they thinking about athens athens which also was was mob rule in a in a certain way or at least a conservative would call it that people are starting to use the classical terms for constitutions so democracy oligarchy um all of those greek derived terms including the term anarchy of course and democracy and anarchy are very much in the discourses as negative terms there's been really interesting work recently by Marku Paltonen showing that actually the term democracy is starting to be used positively and applied to what we would call representative democracy, not direct democracy, as in Athens, uh, during the English Revolution. And this is a process that um, that is kind of happening in parallel to the to the levelers proposing something which looks to us like representative democracy. The levelers themselves don't call it that. It's other people, other radicals, mm. who are starting to say representative democracy is what we really need to get us out of this situation and stabilize things. Um, but the idea of democracy is coming back, but it still does carry for a lot of people this overwhelmingly negative connotation and this idea that anything democratic by definition is actually something anarchic. Um, and of course, in Aristotle's scheme of constitutions, where he pairs good constitutions with bad constitutions, mm -hmm. he uses democracy for the negative version, for the version of of the rule of the many that that goes bad, that becomes self-interested, that becomes corrupt. Um, so that kind of weight on the term democracy is still there, even as some people are starting to to recover it. I think it's really interesting that the levelers largely avoid this whole language of classical constitutional classification. They don't really say um, we want a democracy. In many ways, they try to avoid saying we want something that's completely new and not what we've just had for the last few hundred years at all. They say, actually, the problem with the Civil War was we didn't know um, what our constitution was. We need to clarify this for the future. Mm. We need to abolish anything in it that's corrupt. But they don't say we're actually starting out to create something completely fresh from the powers that we have as the people. Um, that might be implied by the fact that they issue these agreements of the people and that they want people to actually subscribe them. They want them to be authorised by the people, but they don't quite ever say legitimate government has completely collapsed. We're starting from scratch. We're constituting something completely new. 
Um, and they do avoid this language of democracy, perhaps because it's just much easier to see it weaponized against them than used for them in this period. And it certainly is weaponized against them. Yeah, that's just this thing you say about the way the word democracy is, you know, first, first a slur and then a few few people use it uh, to describe themselves. It seems to parallel anarchy almost precisely because anarchy is a slur that shows up around this time, 16th and 17th century, just like democracy. And whereas people start advocating for themselves as Democrats are believing in democracy, at least in the 17th century, it's only in the 19th century that someone finally says, Proudhon famously, also famously a radical who is a total misogynist, says, you know, anarchy is something is something that we want. However, in those 18th century American debates that I am so familiar with, you have people advocating for democracy, most famously Paine and Jefferson. And the people who are against them use the word democracy as well as the word anarchy to say, you know, democracy and anarchy are roughly the same thing and it's bad. And Paine doesn't doesn't stump for anarchy, but he does say, you know, I believe in democracy and this this gets him kicked out of the country and, you know, it gets him arrested in France as well. People, you know, this idea of democracy is is toxic and I could see that being the case even more so in the in the 1640s. Yeah, and it is definitely linked to anarchy in people's minds as well. Um, Charles I famously, or a statement uh, a statement attributed to Charles I, um, talks about the mixed constitution and the glories of the mixed constitution, something which some royalists thought was a mistake. He'd, been, he'd maybe conceded too much in describing England as a mixed constitution. <laughs> Um, but he says, well, you know, there are positive aspects, there are, there are positive things that democracy, the House of Commons essentially contributes in a mixed constitution. But if it goes bad, then it de descends into this confusion in, of, of chaos and anarchy. Um, so you get that kind of idea of anarchy uh, linked with democracy, with excesses of democracy, with democracy becoming the whole the whole of the constitution rather than a very, very carefully confined part of the constitution. Um, it's very much a common idea. And you do get the word anarchy used against the levelers. I know you have a great example you want to throw at me, but um, I also found this from Thomas Edwards, who is a, a Presbyterian heroseographer who is very much opposed to the, to the wider fringes of religious radicalism in this period. And he says that Lilburn wants the overthrow of the three estates and the laws of the kingdom and to set up a utopian anarchy of the promiscuous multitude. So oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I would love a utopian anarchy of the promiscuous multitude. Let's let's get that on a bumper sticker. Um, yeah, the the one I found is uh, it's a pamphlet called a modest narrative a modest narrative of intelligence. I don't know who the author is, whether we know or not, but uh, the anarchist historian George Woodcock he believes he he wrote that this is the first use of the word anarchist as opposed to you know for anarchy and my colleague jesse Cohn tracked this down and so he's writing against an agreement of the people which is the the leveler thing yep. right the leveler platform yes. if i've got that correct uh the people must not agree he says for if so the result will be that all excrescences which do both clog and disfigure the body must be taken off so we've got to stop this um to prevent which by these Switzerland anarchists. And it's, I find this especially delightful 
sorry, I, I should say by these Switzerland Switzerland anarchists, because I think my laugh sort of cut that off because Switzerland does become, I mean, when, when you get people calling themselves anarchists, it does start in Switzerland. So obviously Switzerland is, is viewed as a dangerously revolutionary country harboring anarchists in 1649. And damn, did the anonymous author of uh, a modest narrative of intelligence get that get that right yes switzerland anarchists it's a thing how did he know yeah it's fascinating and I, and again it's a it's a direct link back to democracy because the societies across europe that you could look at and think were a democracy i mean that is the swiss cantons you know they're a direct For, democracy so democracy and anarchy yeah i mean there there's obviously an old democratic tradition of insisting that democracy and anarchy are completely different things and please don't associate them and then this can get us to the Putney debates. There's also obviously an anarchist tradition of saying, if you're talking about representative democracy, if you're talking about saying who can vote and it's voting and you know the grandees are the ones who are going to get elected and it's only men and they have to be a certain age or have a certain amount of property, if this is what democracy is, then it's actually very circumscribed and elitist, less circumscribed and elitist than oligarchy, but compared to a true, I've already forgotten, promiscuous multitude, it's, it really is quite circumscribed. So when you read those Putney debates, it's both thrilling and also, you know, would seem quite tame to Bakunin or someone mm. like that. Yes. So the Putney debates sort of take us back out of the core of the civilian level of movement and back over to the army um, in 1647. But there was civilian involvement as well. And, and I think there are leveler ideas definitely coming through in the army, in the army discussions. Some historians would call some of those involved in those army discussions, people like uh, Thomas Rainsborough. Some historians would call them levelers, some wouldn't. But the debates are fascinating and they're, they're strongly influenced, I think, by level of thinking. In fact, Lilburn had basically made the same argument in a pamphlet the year before that, that Rainsborough famously makes at the Putney debates. I just, I'm just going to break in here and say, and this can also give you a second to collect your thoughts since I jumped to the Putney debate so quickly. My understanding is that, you know, like levelers, the levelers equals the Putney debates. And here you are, the historian <laughs> telling me that actually it's not, not only do levelers not equal the Putney debates, you have to sort of do a little work to even connect the two. But for the purposes of this podcast, you know, please connect them <laughs> for us. No, Otherwise absolutely. my plan goes out the window. No, I'm very happy to. Yes, so the Putney debates are this fascinating debate within the army with a couple of civilian visitors present, and it's a bit of a mystery exactly why they were there and whether they, John Wildman particularly, whether he has a direct link back to the levellers. He certainly does later work um, more closely with the levellers. So I think you do have that. You do have that link. You don't need to panic. Um, in a <laughs> sense, I have to make the link a bit more explicit because some historians have done a lot of work to, to chip away at it and to differentiate the two strands of radicalism. Um, but that link, that link is there. But the Putney debates are a debate within the army, and they're fascinating because they, because we have verbatim record of parts of these debates. And this is at the point where the army as a whole is essentially in mutiny against Parliament. But within that, radicals within the army are becoming increasingly dissatisfied with the army leadership and the deal that they might be on the point of making with the king. And there are various reasons for that. There are some practical reasons for that. The army men are very worried about, do they have indemnity? Are they protected for punishment from things they may have done uh, under the command of parliament in the war? Or will they actually be open to punishment once the king comes back? There are these kind of practical issues, but there are also 
um, much more ideological issues about the direction of settlement. And the Putney debates, where we have this physical record, this verbatim record taken down in shorthand at the time and, and written up into a fair copy for parts of the debates, is absolutely fascinating. You do really hear people's voices and personalities coming through in parts of this. And the part of the Putney debates that's really famous is often called the franchise debate. And this is a long dispute. Um, Oliver Cromwell was there. Fairfax wasn't there. Fairfax had a habit of being slightly ill whenever anything difficult or controversial was happen <laughs> happening. He also avoided being at the trial of Charles I. Uh, Cromwell was there, but didn't say very much in the debates that we have recorded. The person who leads for the army grandees is Henry Ireton. He's Cromwell's son-in-law. He's closely associated with Cromwell. And he takes issue with a clause in the first agreement of the people, which is a document that's been presented to this meeting of the council of the army, the general council of the army. And there's a clause in this document which says that we would like in the future constitution votes to be distributed according to the number of inhabitants. And Ayrton mm. says, what does that mean? Does that mean that you want to give a vote to, to every man? And of course, the agreement of the people have very tactfully not spelt that out. So there's a <laughs> long tussle that goes on about, about this demand for votes that are more proportionally uh, related to the number of inhabitants in each constituency. Um, and it emerges that, of course, there is a push towards a much wider franchise, certainly on the part of the army radicals. And it is absolutely clear that, that they certainly feel that people who have signed up out of belief, out of conscience to fight for Parliament, have risked their lives, have potentially spilled their blood. They've earned the vote um, and they deserve the vote. And that, that sense is very strong and comes through in some angry speeches in the debate. Whereas Ayrton takes a line that is really tactless and and insensitive to the to the people that he's talking to by essentially saying that unless you have property fixed property so land in England you're really not part of the political nation um, you don't have to be consulted because actually you could leave the country you could go somewhere else um, and if you start giving the vote to people who don't have land, what's to stop foreigners coming in and voting? And he has an extended analogy with foreigners and says, well, you know, if we're going to cede this line that you need property to vote, if we're going to go beyond that line, then you don't have an argument why foreigners shouldn't vote. And of course, uh, the radicals are saying we're talking about people who were born in England. Again, I think there's a link back to the levellers because... Lilburn really forged this whole language of the freeborn Englishman and the rights of the freeborn Englishman. And so the levellers and Lilburn said Englishmen have a birthright simply by being born in England. They do have that right. They do have that right to political equality and to actually giving consent to the government that they're under. And that's really the argument that Thomas Rainborough, Colonel Rainborough, then articulates in the Putney debates as well. Um, and he famously says, the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live, uh, just as much as the greatest person, and therefore he ought to have a vote uh, on the laws that he's going to have to live under. And even that poorest he phrase does actually go back and echo something that Lilburn had said in a pamphlet that was very similar. I don't have the exact wording. Um, but I think there is a very strong connection with the kind of arguments that Lilburn was making, the kind of picture that Lilburn had forged in all of his writings that that the freeborn Englishman has this uniform package of rights and liberties, has political equality, and therefore should have um, a political role. Yeah, that's really interesting. Someone 
it pops into my head uh, someone, I think it's Cromwell. He doesn't talk much, but at some point, someone interviews, I think it's Cromwell, and he is offended that someone who is, quote, I, I will never forget this quote, merely breathing mm-hmm. merely breathing because if it's, yes if you if it's, if you simply have a life to live as opposed to actually a plot of england he he can't imagine you being part of part of the realm yes in a certain way yes and to a certain extent the radicals have to kind of fall back on saying that that what people have is and again this is this is something that richard overton the level leader had said in a pamphlet um, that you have a propriety in yourself. <laughs> you know, that's the most important yeah. property you have. Overton <laughs> says every man has a self-propriety. So so they kind of use this language of property. The language of property is absolutely key to English political discourse. And the radicals take it up, but they transform its meaning and say you do have you have an interest in you have an interest in yeah, you have an interest in breathing. <laughs> you have you yeah. have a propriety in your own body and your own conscience, yeah. um, and that gets you over the line to to be involved in politics. Yeah, I'm absolutely struck that when he comes to articulate democracy in America, Thomas Jefferson says everyone has to have a chunk of land. I mean, he he in in, in other words agrees with both groups of people, and he says it's very simple: just give everyone a little piece of propriety. And he says democracy can only work if everyone owes some some land. And uh, sorry, democracy can only work if everyone owns some land. And he explicitly makes this an English thing, uses the phrase yeoman farmer. Mm-hmm. How anyone let him write that while he was a plantation owner? I, yeah. But that's, that's a topic. That's a topic for another day. Um, I think this is fantastic. I think, can you just sort of tell us how the, how the leveler movement ends and that can and that can take us where we where we need to be yeah so the levelers were i think important in making the regicide possible they were involved in some negotiations before the trial and execution of the king with the leading radical mps and army leaders about what kind of settlement should follow and of course the levelers wanted an agreement of the people to follow and to be ratified by the people not just imposed by parliament But as soon as the king actually was executed, it began to be clear that that wasn't going to happen. Mm. And the levelers really felt they'd been strung along in these negotiations. In fact, Lilburn had really stormed out of them um, before the regicide Mm. and didn't sit in the regicide court. Um, So once the king is executed, obviously, the new government, which is very improvised, uh, not very thought out, has a huge security problem and it has a problem from the radical side as well as from the royalist side, and it needs to deal with both of these problems. Uh, I think the levellers might have been prepared to go along with it if they had had the kind of uh, working towards the kind of constitution that they actually wanted to see. But what came after the regicide was instead a kind of slamming on of the brakes, the appointment of quite a quite a conservative-looking um, council who were going to be running affairs day to day, and the levellers are horrified by that. So Lilburn starts pamphleteering again. He puts out a pamphlet called England's New Chains Discovered in two parts. The second part is a part that people are supposed to subscribe and pass to some organisers. And again, it's a kind of petition. Um, the leveller leaders are arrested, uh, put in the tower. Even William Wallen, who'd never been in prison before, he was actually quite a respectable character who stayed a bit under the radar as a, as a leader of the leveller movement. From there, they issue the third agreement of the people. This is part of what uh, the army mutiny that follows is taking as its as its kind of totem, the third agreement of the people. But that army mutiny is crushed and the new regime establishes its security. 
then Lilburn himself is put on trial for his life uh, in autumn 1649, uh, but manages to talk the jury into acquitting him, which is quite a remarkable thing that he <laughs> Um, and there are bonfires celebrating the fact that Lilburn has, has put one over on the authorities again. But it is effectively the end of the Leveller movement. There are a few little revivals, 1653, 1659, you get a few things that, that seem to suggest that though that group of people are gathering again and articulating some of the same ideas in response to events. Um, but really, the Leveller movement as an organised movement uh, is fairly effectively crushed in 1649. So the civilian levelers are put on trial and the military levelers get that that whiff of grape shot yes. that I promised them they wouldn't they wouldn't get yes. from Cromwell, but they did, of they course. Did. Oops. Yeah. My bad. Not a historian of the English <laughs> Revolution. Um, at, at this point, I think uh, all that's left to say, is there anything else you feel like you, you would like to share before we go? I think that's it. I think that that covers all the key things, I think. Okay. Well, then all I have to, let's, all I have to say now is... Leveler sounds like communism. It sounds like a bunch of people all living together, all with the same amount of everything, no highs and no lows. And these levelers, they they didn't want that at all. Yeah. They weren't the levelers. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So this is obviously uh, your link with the next episode where you get to the diggers <laughs> and you get a much more radical argument in terms of, of economic issues. The levelers did have some economic concerns. They did talk about poverty. They did talk about certain kinds of um, you know, land holding, those kinds of issues. But they actually, because this term leveler was flung at them, and they were in fact not in favour of equalising property, they just simply felt that regardless of property, people should be politically equal. Um, because this term leveler was flung at them, they actually, in the third agreement, even made it treason to suggest that you should that you should do away with private property. So they very much are not uh, levelers of property. Um, and the biggest... They weren't Swiss. They weren't <laughs> anarchists. They weren't levelers. But yes, as you have said, we will we will get to the true levelers with Gerard Winstanley soon enough. But Rachel, you, you are done. You have served your part. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it.